Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Listeners, we are going to catch up with a guest I have not chatted with since June 2018, and he's actually a favorite guest, so I'm excited to bring him back in. But first, wanted to give a shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Our guest, in fact, after all these years, an accomplished grandmaster, has finally written his first chessable course. It's called Beginner Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. We will be digging into that course, uh, among other things, but of course, they also have a wide variety of opening uh, middle game and end game courses that you can check out. And if you sign up for Chessable Pro, be sure to use the link in the show notes to help support Perpetual Chess. So as for our guest, he is a state champion of three different states. I forgot to ask him how many for each state before we recorded, but a bunch of state championships <laughs> I, is all I, you I really wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and he's also been a scholastic national champion. He's a writer and a trainer. And as we said, now a chessable author. And I'm excited to welcome back to the program, Grandmaster Josh Friedel. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to catch up after all this time. So yeah, you finally I didn't know it was that long. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We're getting old. I was um, like, ah, he doesn't like me anymore. It's fine. It's no big deal. <laughs> so how is... Uh, what was the impetus for your first chessable course, Josh? Um, well, a lot of it because I am, um, you know, I started writing a book, you know, a year or two ago, but not as seriously until the like last year, I would say. Uh, and I was talking to Jesse Cry, and he was like, suggested, yeah, you should, you know, dude, you know, of course he has to, <laughs> and like, you should probably put try to put some of it on chessable, do this. So I'm like, all right, like, you know, so he put me in touch with someone, and it was very clear that that wasn't going to work, but. I was still like, you know, they're like, if you want to do a, vi- you know, video series or something, we'd be happy to do something. Uh, so they ask, what did I want to do it on? And you have to realize, like, I've probably made videos on almost everything at this point. <laughs> I haven't made as many as people who make them online all the time. Like, I'm not putting myself in that category, but I've been doing video courses for like four or five different websites since I was in my teens. So it's kind of like, I've done everything. Just like, what, what do you need is more the important thing. Uh, so they needed wanted beginner content. Uh, so I, we tossed some ideas around and they really liked the idea, which I actually also was one of my, the ideas I liked better, which was the choice between the two options uh, thing. 
Uh, and that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, so. so the course is called Beginner Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. And Josh, I was impressed because obviously Chessable has a large roster of uh, course creators, uh, some uh, more strong amateur level, and then grandmasters like yourself. Um, and the rap on grandmasters is that they're not great beginner teachers, but but <laughs> that doesn't apply to you. Your course is very clearly presented. What, what differentiates you in that regard? Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I'm sure there are others who also teach beginners quite well. I, I think that a big part of it is the separation. So like a comparison I would make is that let's say you're learning a language, right? And you want to talk to native speakers, right? Let's pretend GMs are the native speakers who just know everything backwards and forwards. It's great, right? You talk to them and it's good. But if you ask them, why is it this way? A lot of the time they're like, I don't know, this is right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, and I, I don't want to mean like, it doesn't imply that GMs don't know the explanations to things, but a lot of the times things are just so automatic, right? Like when you lo I look at a position and see certain things or whatever, I don't, you know, like for me, it's just, it happens. It's not something that I have to then consciously think about. And it makes it very challenging sometimes to teach and present to beginners because it's such a different perspective. Um, but one of the things that, so I, I took a break from playing tournaments for a while. And so I pursued different things. One of the things I pursued was um, I always loved music and I've been learning guitar for like the last five, six years, right? So I got to be a beginner at something, which is cool. And one thing I learned was that, like, you know, how cool it was to, you know, <laughs> learn things for the first time but that things have to be very simple like even just like playing a c chord is hard when you haven't done it like you don't know how to press a string and do things so it gave me a appreciation for you know again for like what it was like because i was a beginner at one point so it, it helped me sort of connect to like what it's like and being able to go okay like you break things down very basically and try to make it so that you know i'm not just assuming they see like a two move tactic right like you you uh, you know, you have to say, um, talk about like, all right, this is what's happening. This is the important things in the position. Choose between two options, right? Which is like much easier than you have a board full of pieces and like, what am I going to do? I don't know. I could bring this out. I could bring this out. When you focus on something, you're trying to look for pieces that are not covered. These are your two choices. You have to either not hang something or take a piece. Like it becomes a little simpler because when you're starting, the board is just, you know, this mess, but when you become really advanced, you don't think about that. I just see a board with a bunch of pieces attacked and okay, whatever, right? Um, so separating that and trying to go back to how I viewed it then is an, like a, a big part of that for me. Um, because it's a different it's a perspective. Like you don't think about it consciously, right? Like, a, like if you're speaking English, right? We're not thinking about syntax and grammar at all, right? We're just speaking. So. Yeah, and it's especially impressive for you because... Uh, you know, most grandmasters started early, but you started at three. Like you started, uh, yeah. So I don't many. remember too much. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but I'm sure, like, I went through the beginner phase probably longer because I was like young and probably didn't have the attention span of someone learning later. Right? I was told I was a very boring child with a good attention span, but you know, even <laughs> so, it's not. Um, so, but th th again, like learning something new for me, right, is also you know, or pursuing a language or something like it, it gives you a perspective because everything is hard, right? Everything is not easy. And um, it's it's very helpful to kind of be the person because like I was saying with the language thing, you talk to someone who also had to learn the hard way, it can be more helpful because they know how what you have to go through. They don't yeah. just do it automatically, right? Yeah. And as you said, I do really like the idea of breaking it down into two choices for, mm -hmm. for each move. It does make it 
um, much more manageable. So yeah. did you had that idea in mind from the beginning of the course? Uh, it was one of several ideas I presented to them. Cause like I've said, I, I've kind of done a lot. So it's sort of, but that's one idea, which I like in general, uh, when teaching beginners, um, and so it was something I presented and they liked, that was the idea that they liked. And so we kind of went with that. It was a collaborative thing a little bit, right? Cause they, you know, I have my ideas, but I also am aware that they have numbers and what people like and more than I do. Right. So I also want to collaborate with them. So it's not just my ideas, right? It's their ideas, but then I make the material and design the course and things like that. Okay. And for for finding the material for this course, you went through a bunch of chess.com beginner games. Yep. Like what a lot of what them. struck you as you did that? Uh well what struck me is I, I wasn't as fully aware of what a beginner was as I thought I was. Was what first happened because I've taught beginners, but I would say I've taught beginners who aren't quite at the beginner level that they're talking yet. Like my the beginners I've taught are like they put pieces in the center, they castle kind of thing. Yeah. And in most of those games that did not happen. Um, so it kind of took, you know, took me by surprise, but at the same time, I also had to remember that a lot of those games are blitz games or rapid games. Like the idea of beginners playing blitz is almost horrifying to me <laughs> because it's like, it's so hard to play a chess game when you're a beginner. Never like, never mind, like just play a legal chess game where you don't try to hang anything playing slow, right? The idea of a beginner playing blitz, to me, it's like, okay, like it's cool, but you know, you're not learning much. <laughs> You're just yeah. basically making random moves. So it felt kind of hard, but I tried to choose examples, which I saw a bunch, right? Like, obviously, like putting a piece on a square can be captured or not taking an opponent's piece when it's on a square that is captured is a very clear thing that beginners have to learn. But apart from that, it was just, I tried to lock on to like the more common patterns that I saw and try to make it, it do an example where almost for sure they've seen something exactly like that. Not a, Not an example where it's like, well, here you could have trapped a bishop on the side of the board and didn't, but this pattern never happens. And, you know, I try to stay away from that kind of thing. And I don't know how much of the course you want to give away, but there's it's one thing to identify them. It's another thing to learn how to avoid them, as yes. the second half of your course title uh, suggests. So yeah. how did what did you determine? Like, how do you figure out how to avoid them again, coming from a grandmaster perspective? Um, a lot of it is building board awareness. Um, so what that means is that you want to be aware of everything that's attacked and you want to attack on a board and you want to be in the habit of doing this all the time. And that's one of the reasons why when I see all these beginner blitz games, I'm kind of shuddering to myself because you don't have time to do that. And what that means is you're not getting in the habit of doing it. Uh, a lot of it is about habit. If you get used to every time you look at a chess position, you look at what's being attacked and what they're attacking eventually it just becomes second nature. You don't have to think about it. You can tell me this too, right? Like you're not always, you have to think about it sometimes, but you automatically will see if a queen's attack probably, right? right? And it doesn't mean you're not looking, but you get in the habit of looking all the time and that's how it becomes automatic. And I think that um, for a lot of people, because of how they interact with chess, they don't build that as a habit and then it makes it harder to progress and harder to see. And that's just like the very basic thing, right? But it makes it hard to, practice anything right and i know josh you've been teaching chess for for decades um and as mm -hmm. you say i've presented courses for a wide wide array of audiences but do you have beginner students these uh, days? i do i, I have begin not beginner like not beginner beginner but i have students who actually like 
you know, this week actually taught a like a first time student who's 70 years old and is picking up the game for the first time in 50 years, basically. So wow, not beginner, cool. but like, you know, sort of towards that range. Okay. Um, and I, I have taught people like who are who are pretty low rated, but I don't generally like generally speaking, beginner beginner students wouldn't go to me, which makes sense, right? Um, but I, I have taught and do teach like some beginners. Okay. So I would say most of my students, at least now, are in the I would say sixteen hundred to twenty one hundred range is very common um, for me. I used to have a higher student range. I would say, like, I used to teach like more titled players than I currently do. Um, but like, I have taught pretty much. But I would say, like, that intermediate range is much more common. But I have taught beginners for sure. And and as you get to that intermediate range, Josh, um, mm-hmm. what are the most common mistakes you see, like, at that level, like sixteen hundred so to twenty one? A lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of my lessons are kind of I, I repeat some things a lot. Um, so I'm sure my students get a little bit sick of it, but one of the most common, uh, intermediate mistakes I see is how they calculate. Uh, and it's actually, this is a mistake that goes up the chain too, because a lot of the times 2200s will have a similar problem at a higher level than 1600s will. And what that is, is they're just not considering enough options. Mm-hmm. Like when they're calculating all the variations look like sticks, <laughs> like it's boom, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. There's no like tree, right? Like a variation here, they can play both captures and quite often, they're not making a mistake on move six. They're making a mistake on move two because they're not considering a move. And I'd say that's one of the most common mistakes I see at a lot of levels between even like, you know, 12, 1300 to 2300. Like it's it's a similar version. Obviously, a 2300 will make different mistakes, but it's the same thing. Um, and it's something I notice, you know, even when I analyze with players who are my level or stronger, like what I notice about really strong players is they're considering more options a lot of the time. It's yeah. just a big part of it. So just getting to like forcing yourself to not like, you know, on move two, if they have three captures, you look at three captures. You don't look at just the one move that's in your head and maybe will be right, but maybe won't be. And that's like a huge, a huge one for intermediate players, I would say. I'm certainly guilty. Yeah. But, <laughs> You're not it's, it's weird because it's like it's one of those things where eight out of ten times, nine out of ten times, you're okay. But then <laughs> that one move that you forgot to look more widely can can really bite you. But you have to think about this: eight out of nine. First of all, nine out of ten is very generous, I would say. But let's even pretend it's nine out of ten. That's one. Deci- that's like one decision. How many of those decisions are you making in a game? How many right. of those lines are you calculating in a game? How many mistakes does that add up to? And chess is an unforgiving game. You only need one. Yeah. Right. So, but if you're, and and it's not like I'm going to, I'm telling you that you're not going to make mistakes when you consider more moves, but so often a variation can be just discarded because just an alternative on move two, you don't have to waste time thinking about it. Um, And it becomes such a common thing that, you know, because I have some students who are, you know, younger and improving players, right? And they can calculate blindingly fast. But even with them, half the time, they calculate like a six move line in like a few seconds. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. But on move two, <laughs> you right. know, every time, you know, and it's uh, it's always kind of fun, though, because they know. And then but it's really hard to actually force yourself to do it. It's a lot of discipline. So in your lessons, are you often like kind of just slowing down? And uh, it makes me think of what you said about learning guitar, like slowing down and sort of just going through it. Yeah, together. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I would have this, like, my guitar teacher, like, I'd be trying to play something. They'd be like, okay, go between these two chords. The, just practice this mo- one movement. And I notice, oh, my hands are all screwed up. Of course, this is terrible. And then I slow it down. Oh, it becomes, like, manageable, right? Yeah. 
So you, you, and when I do chess lessons, it's kind of like that also, because like you're trying to go fast, you're just glazing over it. Um, and the, the object is not like during a game, you're going to be a turtle the whole time, right? It's more just, you learn how to do it slowly and methodically and correctly at first. And then it becomes almost automatic to do it that way. Like your brain will naturally do it. There's a reason why like you watch GMs calculate lines sometimes and they're very accurate right out of the gate. And it's because they're naturally doing that. They're always considering, you know, not that they're going to do it perfectly and taking more time will help, but you want it automatically to do that. You don't want it to be like you have to force yourself. And Josh, aside from not thinking widely enough, do any other common intermediate mistakes uh, spring to mind? Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. One of my favorite ones that I end up harping on a lot um, is kind of useless artificial moves. So <laughs> what I would define that is like, someone's like, you know, they're like, all right, I played Rook AD8. So when you're learning, right, you learn everything good, you put your pieces in the center, everything's great, right? But later, you, you get, you, you can judge whether something's good. There's so many times I'll see, all right, Rook AD8 or Rook AC8 or Rook AC1 and a C4, a D4 opening all the time. But it's like, okay, what does your Rook do there? Right. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just not a useful move or moves like H6, A6, like prophylactic moves that prevent nothing, that do like almost nothing. I see it a lot. And the fact is that like, and this is another general one that I harp on after practice, not venting about it, but it's kind of like time matters. Like you can't take your time in most positions too much. Like chess is a relatively fast paced game you have to make your moves count as much as you can, right? So there are situations you can take your time and play slow, but if you're playing like semi-useless moves, like pretty early when you could be developing pieces, it's really not good. Um, and it's a mistake I see a lot. Like I uh, I see it more than I used to, like, because when I was young, I was kind of a like very aggressive player, not like I am now, but like I was a very aggressive player who would sack pieces. I always wanted to get things out really fast. Um, so when I see like even younger players now, like playing moves like H6 and A6, it freaks me out. But, um, it's something I see a lot though, like where it's like, ask if your move like really does something. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because in our last interview in 2018, you know, that was when you were doing this series on YouTube called autopsy, which it's still up. I definitely recommend listeners, um, check it out. Very instructive videos from Josh. Mm-hmm. And one of the terms you used that stuck with me, I think I might have even mentioned in our other interview, was this idea of housekeeping moves. Um, uh, yeah. So I think it's like a fine line for... It, it really um, is. It's not as easy as you would think. Um, yeah, because it's yeah. like we we might think we're being prophylactic, but we're really wasting time. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, a lot of it is to do with the... Like, you have to read the game situation, right? Like, if you're... Like, a lot of these kind of H6A moves I'm talking about are relatively early when you could be developing pieces or making big improvements. Yeah. Like look for big improvements first. And then there are positions where there's not much going on. So then playing little improving moves, but improving, but like small improving moves can be nice because a lot of big moves just don't exist. You don't have big improvements to make, so you make small ones, but you always look for the big ones first. I mean, it's just like if you can put a, you know, develop a piece first, like it's usually good, right? So. Yeah, um, All right, that but makes everything sense. is situational for sure. Yeah, and actually, even in like the teaching I've done of people, you know, sixteen, seventeen hundred, yeah. I've noticed a lot of those H three type moves. It, it like happens in, all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's something that you know. It, it's especially just because it's so different than like I, had, you know, loads of weaknesses. Right when I was you know younger, and 
all of this, but it was like, it's just so different. The notion that like even young players play like that now is like, it's just weird to me. Like, it's not bad, right? It's just, it's a funny weakness to have. Uh, yeah. Like when you should be overly ambitious and trying to checkmate when you shouldn't and things like that. Yeah. It goes back to the uh, adults being more cautious, you know, um, thing, which I've definitely observed in, in chess players. So they, they want to, you know, yeah. Prepare everything and then launch. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, chess, chess doesn't, doesn't always work. You know, not life is life and chess <laughs> not perfect, right? So yeah, you know, have exactly. To, you have to get things out sometimes. Um, yeah. I also wanted to mention you mentioned the autopsy series. So the autopsy series. I mean, I don't want to say I put a knife in it. That's a little bit wrong. But <laughs> I, I don't plan on doing um, anything with that in particular. But I am trying to make my YouTube channel active again. It was something nice. Well, I talked to chessable like um, social media people and stuff like that because it's something I'm. You know, if there were ratings, I would be like below zero with that kind of stuff. So uh, they're like, you know, I'm like, what can I do if I don't know anything and I'm not going to do tons of stuff? They're like, well, like YouTube videos are good and stuff like that. I'd recommend that. And for a while, I wasn't doing them because I was doing so many videos and getting, you know, paid to do them, right? That I wasn't doing my channel as much, but I'm trying to make my channel active again. So one or two videos a week, different levels too. So some will be beginner focused. Others will be more intermediate to advanced. Um. Some will be like the last one I did one on Chess 960 and trying to learn from Chess 960. We'll be right back with more from Grandmaster Josh Friedel. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. So did you follow this event that just happened in Germany? Yeah, yeah. So raging debates on the internet. I mean, Uh-oh. about like how much people like Chess 960, whether or not... Yeah. Um, it you know what role it should play in professional chess. Uh, what, what's your perspective, Josh? Well, I can tell you that like it, my perspective and a lot of GMs, we love Chess Nine Sixty because it's right. it's cool. Like it's like we you know not that chess isn't good by itself, but you know we've explored so many opening possibilities and things like that to be able to explore new positions is really cool. Um, I like that there's classical because the fact that Chess Nine Sixty was only rapid. Like I played one Chess Nine Sixty event. It was in Iceland. It was rapid. Like and it's like at least one of those games I lost on time. I did pretty well in the event, but like I lost on time one game 
I think it was to Lenderman. He was just, we were just laughing at the board, you know, but it was, uh, it was, um, it was kind of, it was really interesting, but it's like, but I can't figure it out. I have no time. I have to just be practical. And there is an aspect to that, but being able to think and being able to do that, I, I think it's really cool. I can see though, the perspective of, you know, it's hard to follow, you know, even for like, you know, I have to really pay attention to make sure I know where everything is. And I can imagine that for intermediate players, especially or below, it's going to be just so hard to follow um, yeah. because of how crazy it is. I think that for a spectator sport, it will need some time. I think as an interest, though, it is really interesting. And if you have people who present it well, it can be cool to watch. It's just you you would need some good explanations. I didn't I don't watch commentary very often. Right. Um you know, which is, it's not a, like, most commentary is not for me, right? So, um, yeah. but it's like, if the commentary is good, I could imagine people following it, but it would be hard by yourself because it's so confusing. Um, I like it as a game though. And I think it's fun to watch. I think they should stop renaming it. Can we like decide on <laughs> yeah, the name? Seriously. Like it's getting kind of stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, freestyle, like, are we going to have butterfly chess next? Like what is happening? <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, I think they need to decide on a name, but I, I think it has promise, but it's going to be hard to, un, you know, but I think the fact that it was classical, I really liked. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I like classical like in general, too. but for 960, I think it's really important that it's classical. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, Magnus, no fan of classical chess, but for 960, he likes it for those same yeah. reasons you mentioned. I mean, I don't even know if I believe the whole fan of classical chess thing. It's more like, you know, the world championship, like preparing for that. I can't even imagine how exhausting that is all the yeah. time. Like, I mean, Dingler and taking a year off, I'm like, sure, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't even imagine. Like, for me, it's, you know, and especially now, like, because I would say, like, you know, as a professional player, like, I'm not playing right now and I'm, ho I'm hoping to come back to it, but it's kind of like playing professionally is like a whole full time thing where it's just, and you constantly are looking at openings at the top level, right? Like, I don't have to do that, but top players have to do that all the time. And I can imagine how just staring at a computer, like, I could see how that gets annoying right but i think you know it doesn't mean that classical chess is like you know he would hate it necessarily it's just there's a lot tied to it and it is exhausting that is definitely what I think. yeah <laughs> it's yeah, a lot I'm of very energy. sympathetic to the top players but i'm also yeah, sympathetic yeah. to amateurs that are like chess is confusing enough you know when i know where, <laughs> where when i know where the pieces start like, i know <laughs> I, I totally get it it's one of those things where because i mean I, again like i the whole like seeing a board right like it, you know i can adapt to a chess 960 position okay it takes me time but like you know if you know you're 1600 or 50 i can imagine just being like okay this is just random like why is this happening i try to actually in my video i try to break it down a little bit and explain like i took the carlson position where he played g4 for example and i explained how well you just look right the g4 pawn can't be attacked by anything the knight on h1 is bad it comes behind the pawn it actually is very logical here let's take the chess position this is why it doesn't work here it doesn't serve a function it gets attacked by the bishop right um i apologize to all the grob fans out there <laughs> right. but you know what i mean like so i i try to break that down and i think if it's broken down people can follow it but i think there actually that the fact that it's classical is really important because like try even no matter how great a commenter commentator you are if you're breaking down a rapid just 960 game good luck to you you know yeah yeah and it sounds like i mean the guy who sponsored this is going to sponsor a bunch more of them so we'll yeah. have time to decide if, <laughs> if we're gonna like it or not by the way josh i strongly <laughs> agree with you about the name it's another it just adds another layer yeah. of uh confusion but yeah. 
and then like freestyle go like what what is happening like <laughs> I, I just yeah, i don't know well said yeah. Um, well, bringing it back to regular chess improvement, which is challenging enough, yeah. um, we have a question from Patreon sub and your uh, friend and fellow Wisconsinite, Chris Wainscott. Chris, How's uh, it going, Chris? <laughs> thanks as always for supporting the pod. So, Chris, first of all, thanks you for uh, giving him a grill. So apparently, your your generosity knows no bounds, Josh. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, that was the best. Like I taught him chess for a while. He still actually attended like one of my uh, monthly um, training sessions that I run. Uh, but the grill was the greatest gift I could ever give. So. <laughs> yeah, and we may talk some cooking at the end, but we'll, we'll save that for the, we'll save that for the end. Uh, so Chris asks, he says, um, "How should players approach goal setting? The goal can be whatever you like: rating, learning, and opening. Can you give some examples of goals you've set for yourself?" Yeah. So my own, I'm not as much a goal oriented person, if that makes sense. So when I was younger and trying to get to different levels, right? Obviously, it's like, well, the next levels national master i guess i'll shoot for that fm im gm right well where do i go now i'm not going to become world champion probably but i'll try to get to this right but it wasn't really what motivated me i was always just kind of learning um so but i would say that goals help a lot of people like very specific goals so i can appreciate that the one advice i would give with goal setting is make it something that is as much within your control as possible so i don't like rating goals because let's say you're 2100 trying to get to 2200 and you're like, okay, I'm going to study. I'm going to do all this great stuff. Great. I'm going to play a tournament. Now, in this tournament, you play three juniors who are underrated by 300 points. And then you play a retired person and you walk into their prep and you happen to lose. And like, and then you take a bath, right? Okay, well, I guess what you were doing, the studying you did, didn't work. You have to change. But that's not necessarily true, right? Right. You, that wasn't in your control fully. Like, when you're dealing with opponents, right, you can't just, you know, count on it on getting to a certain place. So rating goals, I think, are not as ideal because of that. Like, if you set a, long, a rating goal, at least make it long-term. Like, a very long-term goal. Because the fact is that, like, it's not within your control always. It really just isn't. Uh, so I like goals that are firmly within your control. So for example, my goal is for the next month, I'm going to get in, you know, and I'm going to average this many study hours per week. I'm going right. to learn this opening. I'm going to do this. These are goals that you can control, right? As much as possible. Obviously, things can come up, right? But if you set goals that you can control, then, you know, it's really up to you whether you make them. I, I think that that's the best. Um, and make your goals kind of work and output oriented. Um, if you have a goal, for example, like a lot of people are time troublers, right? And they get into time trouble every game. All right. In my next tournament, I'm going to get in time trouble less than half the games. That's my goal. You know, those are goals you have more control over, but when it's rating goals, it's not just up to you, which means that you could get negative feedback for doing good things, right? If you lose 20 points in a tournament, but you studied really hard and did as much as you could to maximize that tournament, you don't want to have negative feedback. You want that to be you did things correctly. You have to keep at doing that, and eventually you will do better, right? So, yeah, excellent advice. And so you said you're not a goal oriented person, like no, since... I, I'm not saying it's a positive thing either. It's just right. I'm kind of a, a learner, I guess, if that makes sense. Like even with you know whether it's you know guitar or tennis or cooking, any of my interests, right? Like a, it's like all right, I want to learn how to perfect biryani or something. Right. It's like I'll keep working at it and I'll have a goal in mind of, all right, I want it to taste kind of like this and want it to go here. But 
the the exploration of it and figuring things out and figuring out ah so you have to let this cook in the pan for the you know a little longer and you have to add water to it here that's like those kind of things right uh i find interesting like the exploration of a subject so that's mostly what i'm in it for you know um i love exploring my interest and exploring chess and positions and things like that and um i i just have never been motivated particularly by a goal uh, as much in uh, chess, I did just because they were there, right? Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a cool thing <laughs> to pursue, right? But mostly, I'm just learning, right, and trying to perform better and playing, you know. And you mentioned Josh, like you know, at some point we all figure out, except for you know Magnus and Ding Loren and whoever, that we're not going to be world champion. But obviously, you were quite an accomplished player as a as a youth. Do you do you remember a moment where you you sort of had to reckon with with your own chest mortality? Uh, even though it's at a high level, it's not, um, not not really like in that. You know, the fact is that I always was kind of you know I grew up the same generation as Sakara, right? He's a year younger than me, and it's mm -hmm. like you know if I'm watching someone like that, it's like like if I'm always thinking, oh, I have to be you know like that good or whatever, it's going to be hard, right? Like I have to do my own thing and see how good I can become, right? And you know, there was a point where. The reason I, I stopped, I took a break for a couple years and then COVID happened and then personal life got in the way and whatever. There's, I didn't intend to take a break for as long as I have. But initially it was just, I wasn't enjoying it that much. It wasn't my results. My, you know, my rating was actually going up. I think I was like 25, 50 something again. And I was going up, you know, my rating, I was doing fine. I even won a tournament relatively recently, but it was like, I didn't really, you know, it was round two of a tournament and I was like, man, this is exhausting. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Kind of like I get the Carlson thing. And it was like, it's just, I realized I'd been doing it professionally for just a long time. And that's all I was doing. And I didn't, you know, I, I did admit that, like, I just wasn't, I'm not good enough to make just a living at playing. I'm really not. Right. And I would need to become much better. Like, it's not even, if I gain 100 points, if I get 100 points stronger, I still might not be good enough to make a living from just playing. So if I'm going to play, I need to enjoy it. Like, to me, that's a necessity. And, you know, for me, that's what I accepted more than just not being good enough. Like I never was thinking that way. Like, sure, I would like to become a stronger player. Like I accept there are stronger players, much more talented players. Most of the people in my rant, sure, more talented, whatever. But it didn't really matter to me. I just didn't enjoy it. And that that's what I cared about. And so how concrete is this plan of coming back? And I'm curious. Like, At the what moment, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's one of those where, because it's been like a lot longer than I planned for various reasons that were not in my control, let's say, like it's, it, it's one of those things where I want to do it in the really right way. So I care about that more. Like I want to enjoy when I come back and I also want to be ready. Like I don't want to come back and I mean, it's already people are stronger, right? Like I don't care about gaining or losing rating, but I don't want to come back and just feel like I'm not, can't play or whatever. So, you know, it's going to involve, all right, I'm going to, have an event I really want to play in. I'm not going to just play some random thing where it's like right. two hour, two games a day. And I'm just like, okay, you know, I want it to be something I really want to play in. I want it to be like, I'm really well prepared, like tons of training games. I have people I play with and stuff like that. Right. And train with. So lots of training games, my openings, I've, you know, half of them are outdated. I still, you know, because I teach and I still teach strong players a lot. Like I still have to know openings, but to have my own stuff really well prepared again, to, you know, refresh all like, it's going to be a lot of work. And it's kind of like, you know, I have to be in a position in life where I, I'm ready to do that. Yeah. And so I would say it's not concrete yet. But it's also it's swinging towards that way. Like things are, 
you know, it, it's looking like I'm going to be able to do that. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, but I also really want it to be like, I'm really ready to play and it's an event I want to play at and things like that. Do you have a sense of what event that might be or? Not, not yet. It's one of those, like there are certain tournaments I've enjoyed playing, um, you know, things like Reykjavik Open, I really, you know, events like yeah. that I've always enjoyed, like where it's a cool location and you go, it's different, right? And it's mostly, I think it was one game day with two games in a day for whatever reason. Um, but it's like, mostly it's kind of nice and things like that. Um, so it might be like an out of the country tournament, but there's some organizers here who I've enjoyed like playing their events as well. Um, but it's one of those where it would have to be like, you know, like somewhere I really want to be playing and, and, you know, doing it and, Again, if I don't do what, great, that's okay. Like, I'm not expected to come back and crush everyone, right? But it's like, I, I have a standard and I want to at least, you know, be able to enjoy it and be able to do well. So. Sounds reasonable. And I think it's relatable for, <laughs> you know, non-grandmasters like myself as well. Um, all right. We have another Patreon mailbag question. Mm -hmm. This one is from Brian Karen of mm -hmm. the Facebook Chessbook Collectors Group. Yep. And Brian asks, he says, uh, you had the opportunity to work with a wide variety of excellent coaches, which, according to the internet, Josh, those coaches are uh, Christian Sid, Kaidanov, and Golden. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll verify that in a second. Um, but Brian asks, can you detail what was most memorable about each of your coaches? Yeah. Um, so, first of all, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my first coach, which was National Master Hal Terry from New Hampshire. Uh, being from New Hampshire, there was not a lot of chess there. Uh, you look at the number of rated players from that state, not a lot. So I didn't have a ton of choice, but, um, you know, I happened to get introduced to Hal through a mutual friend, I think. And, you know, I was very young, uh, but he taught me from when I was you know, six years old, basically, until I became 2300, until I became higher rated than him. Um, so he was someone who I worked with a ton. And a lot of the things, he was a kind of coach who... You know, I don't know. He was very dry, kind of. I don't know if he would have worked for everyone, but he had kind of a cool sense of humor, which I like. I assume he still does. I haven't talked to him in a long time. Um, but uh, he had like kind of a cool sense, a very dry sense of humor. But he was very big on, like, he, he loved endgames. So I developed my love of endgames kind of through him as well, because I really liked that phase of the game. Um, and he also had me playing all the gambits and crazy stuff that I did. Even though he was a dry positional player, I was playing my first openings were like Schliemann and Benko and every kind of scotch gambit. Basically, there's a good chance on move six I was down upon. <laughs> right. Just, you know, and, you know, obviously my openings changed and my style changed, but it did, you know, give me, I think, a feel for the initiative younger and things like that. So that was a lot of what I remembered. And, you know, again, like a really great coach for me for a long time. Um, so he helped me a lot. I, want, I wanted to mention that. Um, I did kind of, I did mostly phone lessons with after that. Um, which didn't work as well just because the phone and I was young and it had nothing to do with his English, which was completely fine, but I had trouble understanding because the phone and I was, you know, um, so I didn't take lessons with him, private lessons too long. Uh, I did do, uh, a couple like us chess schools with him and stuff. And what I mostly got from him was that I really appreciated how professional he was. Like when he yeah. went to a tournament, no matter how he was feeling, no matter what was going on, I'd seen him have you know, bad for last round, things like that. Like he always was basically every single game, I'm going to put the maximum and, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm not feeling it or whatever. Like he, he had a very professional approach, which I got to appreciate. And I try to do the same when I go to events, you know, I don't care how I'm feeling. Like even that event I mentioned that it was like Washington international, a really nice event. I liked that event and it was round two and I was tired, but I played the whole event. I even did okay. 
even though I wasn't feeling it at all. And I think a lot of that is watching someone like him. Yeah. Um, so I got that a lot from him. Uh, after that, I worked with Larry Christensen in Massachusetts. So it, it was a very interesting switch because he was very different <laughs> from Kadarov in that uh, Kadarov seemed like very organized to me. You could tell he prepared for the lex for the lessons and he was like just the way he thought was very organized and stuff like this. Larry was not like that at all. <laughs> but what I got from him was just it was so fun to look at positions with him. He just had ideas all the time. Every position, he'd be like, yeah, so you do this, you do this. And uh, like it was it also hard. Like he calculated, it probably still does, like so fast. So to keep, just to keep up with him, I would have to work. So after two hours of working with him, I would be, you know, I'd feel it, you know, and it was like a really uh, cool challenge. Um, and also he got me, it's funny, like, even though he's a very aggressive player, it's his reputation. He actually has a lot of solidity to how he thinks. And a lot of positions, he got me to think more positionally, actually. I still remember there was one example I was showing him one of the games. And I was young. I was trying to show him games I was proud of, you know. So I, I had a game where I had kind of a cool positional win. And there was a position where I grabbed an exchange, right? And he was like, and I was like with a tactic, I was very proud of myself, you know. And he was kind of like, yeah, but you could just play this move and have this opposite bishop ending game and just win without effort. Like, why are you sacking exchange? Mm -hmm. right. And it, that struck me. I was like, oh, I can just play the position like a normal person and just win. Like, I don't have to do this exchange sack, which makes the game much more complicated. Or not exchange sack, like grab the exchange. And it makes the game more tricky. And I, I remember moments like that with him as well as just like the number of ideas. And, you know, a lot of lessons would be he'd have some cool opening idea. And we just look at that for like half an hour instead of whatever else. <laughs> You know, but it was like, it made you want to look at chess. It made me kind of, you know, inspired to look at chess myself. So that was a big part of what I remember with him. Uh, and then with Alex Golden, um, he was like very positionally minded uh, as a player. So a lot of positional stuff, because I, again, I, I would say I was a tactical player for a very long time and attacking player. Uh, and he really helped me with positional chess a lot, as well as with classical stuff. Like he's someone who is, you know, Soviet trained, like very knows like, you know, everything you could know about a Carlsbad structure, things like that. So a lot of the, that kind of training I got from him, uh, as well as just a lot of cool moments. I remember one where this position, I remember I was black against Ibrahimov, who I tended to always get taught a lesson by, which was always fun. But, you know, I had this position where it was really tricky. I thought I didn't like my position. I wasn't sure what to do. And, Golden was like, oh, yeah, just play like, you know, your knight's on e4, doesn't do anything now, put it back on f6, just play a move in the center, that's good. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And, um, you know, he, and he was someone who always had a lot of energy, and was always kind of fun to look at chess with. And, uh, you know, he's someone who I actually helped one time prepare for the US senior, which was a, a funny moment. But uh, uh, he's someone who I worked with a lot who, uh, you know, I enjoyed working with as well. So I was very lucky to to have the coaches I had, I, you know, I'm very thankful I was able to do that. Yeah, legends. And um, let me, is there anyone that wasn't listed on your Wikipedia page that you've worked with? Um, I've worked with people like in, in like smaller capacities, I guess. Um, like I remember, like I've worked with Yermo for like a very brief period. It was myself, actually, and Danny Rich, I remember. It was after like a, a event in Arizona and it was him and I were working with Yermo on Endgames and that was kind of fun. Um, I really enjoyed that. And then... Um, you know, uh, I remember when I lived in California, we had the whole chess house phenomenon. Right. And uh, where I didn't live, but I lived nearby. So they had a couple people come um, and they had uh, Shah uh, Sahis, Lev Sahis was there. 
Um, so, you know, we work with him for a week and then. Yeah, because um, I've heard Narodinsky discuss, well. we're mm-hmm. obviously younger than you, but Bay Area, and I've, I've heard him discuss working with Sakis, but he lived in Israel, right? Yeah, he lived in Israel. He came over, like, he was in the U.S. doing some of the things. I think he worked with Danya as well, who was in right. San Francisco at the time. Uh, so he came by to do a couple of things. But he worked with us for, like, you know, a week um, or so. And it was, because uh, I think it was when Vanai had the Samford, and he wa- that was one of the investment things he did. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, and Mikhailovsky came as well, Victor. Really nice guy, a friend of mine, um, who I, I enjoyed working with. Uh, two completely different approaches and people even though they're both kind of from israel i guess but right um but yeah and and uh that was that was kind of cool but it was you know smaller capacities right a little bit there uh a week here two days there so those are the main people i worked with i would say were um hal uh larry and uh alice golden um okay. and with kind of like for like a briefer Okay. And just as a brief explainer on the chess house so, uh, for listeners. So, yeah. Josh, we talked about this in our 2018 interview. Josh lived nearby. The, this is the somewhat infamous house with Jesse Crive and I bought David Bruce. I've interviewed all of them. So you can uh, hear, yeah. hear the discussions from different perspectives. And, uh, oh, yeah. and Shanklin uh, eventually, yeah. too, right? Yeah. Shanklin, uh, kind of when Vanai moved out, Shanklin moved in. It was It was a whole thing. Amazing. But, yeah, and thankfully, I, like I didn't live there, which probably spared me a lot. But I, you know, was living across the street essentially. So I worked with them. I'd come over in the morning, um, and uh, work on chess and stuff like that. It was still fond memories of that whole thing. Uh, you know, I miss that from time to time having the because I, I still work with you know I, I have a couple of people I work with online and stuff like that. But it's different than just being able to have a chessboard there and work with people. I still really enjoy that. Yeah, and you, I'm guessing you're the strongest player in Wisconsin. Uh, no, uh, no, I can't even, can't even claim that. There's a, a wonder is from Wisconsin. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> good. Yeah. You've got good company at least. So do you I ever... do. Yeah. Well, I, I always, uh, yeah. Like I, I would work, I worked with him sometimes. Um, okay. That's what like, I was going to ask. A, yeah. a couple times more recently. And then, but he was a lot younger as well. And, um, you know, and it's kind of like, even when he was even more recently, he was already stronger than me, but it was kind of like, there were definitely things I could work with him with and, and things like that. But a lot of it also was like me trying to teach him something and him like brutally punishing me. It's like, <laughs> all right. You know, but yeah, I really like, I, I really like a uh, really nice kid and really he like, seems not like a kid it. anymore, but yeah, like really incredibly talented. If he chooses to do more chess, like he would be really, but you know, he has other things going. Uh, we'll see where he goes, but is he still at U of Chicago? Like the years kind of blend together. I don't know. I don't see? know. I haven't talked to him in a really, occasionally I'll, I'll like be like, Hey, that, tor- that game you just played is really cool, but I haven't really talked to him in a while. We'll be right back with more from Grandmaster Josh Friedel. And we are back. All right. Well, Josh, last major topic. Yep. We got to get to your your off-the-board interests. I mean, we've talked some guitar already, but <laughs> in our last conversation, we talked tennis and cooking. Um, how, yeah, are yeah. Your, how are your elos in, uh, in those activities? Uh, well, in tennis, I recently moved up to 4 or 5 um, from 4 And I would say, like... I probably like it was a little overdue in that like other years I, you know, should have moved up, but the way USTA works is kind of weird. So, but I would say like at the moment I'm like, I went from being like very strong forward to now I'm like, you know, I like in, in doubles, I'm probably like low to mid four or five level and in singles a little bit worse, I guess. And what would be the chess uh, rating? I compete with like four or fives in singles too. Like, okay. Like I'm not as good at singles, but, um, you know, what would but be I, the chess like rating to, equivalents? Uh, I don't know. Like, 
I talked to people and like numbers like you could say I maybe just crossed 2000 or something. I don't know. Okay. Um, some number like that. Like to give you an idea, I think like in the Milwaukee area, tennis has a lot more players probably than chess, right? Um, but in the Milwaukee area, there are like, you know, 100, 150, some, some number like that ranked higher than me, something like this. Okay. I don't know. So um, basically, I'm not going pro anytime soon, but I'm enjoying <laughs> it and trying to still get better. And what other uh, what other title players? I think I got a, a breakdown from Mike Klein at some point, but like, yeah. who else? I know Eric Rosen plays tennis. I yeah, Eric Ray Rosen, Robson Ray, is Ray good. Robson. I mean, Mark Ray. Esteban's probably the best. Oh, uh, he right, used to yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, he played like a futures event. Like he was like you know serious player. Um, yeah, I got to hit with him a few times. Like really, really good. Um, and I, I've heard some other people are good, but I've never played with them or anything like that. I think Evan Jew, someone like that, played college, but um, you know. But basically, I'm at the level where I'm like really good as like an amateur, but I play anyone who's like remotely professional, and it's like very sad. So okay, I'm at that level. <laughs> Um, and what about cooking? How's your cooking game? Uh, cooking is going okay. Like it's kind of, kind of different. Cause like, you know, it, when you, you know, it depends like where you are and who you're cooking for and things like that. So I would say my cooking game's doing okay. I, I've, I'd say I cooked a lot more Indian food recently. So that the, I went from making, you know, not great biryani, for example, to making much, much better. Um, you know, Sog's always been a favorite of mine. That's gotten better, things like that. So I, nice. I make a lot of, um, you know, more Indian food and Thai and Chinese food and stuff like that than I used to and less mediterranean I guess. But I still like, you know, I love making a roast chicken, things like that. I can still do it, but it's not uh, something I do as often. You're making me hungry. <laughs> um, all right. And l- last topic, Josh, before we started recording, you were starting to tell me about a book that you're ah, yes. working on. So I don't know how much you want to reveal, but, um, I, I, I'm not a particularly secretive person, but <laughs> okay. basically, yeah. So, I mean, I'm working on something. It's, it's some, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, Hey, any publishers watching, you definitely shoot me an email or something, but I, I, I want to have a little bit more together. So I have a lot of words in it but i i need more like just examples and some of them i'm creating just positions i'm creating because it works better for the example and others i need to find uh or take from my collection of positions but um the basic idea is kind of like i was talking about how like for beginners if you try to like say you're teaching like i was teaching like my niece like a bunch of years ago right you don't start with a board full of pieces it's kind of ridiculous, right? You start with one piece. This is how it moves. You put it in the center of the board, try to move it, try to do things, right? So I take a lot of chess topics and I basically do that. So let's take calculation as an example. The first thing I start with, only what is a tempo move? Only tempo moves, right? Like forcing moves, captures, checks, threats, right? I want you to spot every tempo move just for you. Okay, next set, just for your opponent. It's kind of the sort of tedious playing scales, say, type work that no one really wants to do. Right. But like, that's how you build up a skill. So I basically build it from almost nothing to, you know, like the very beginning and to more advanced, like how to calculate when it's a bit more complicated. Um, it's intended for like, like intermediate players largely, um, but it goes to more like slightly more advanced and it starts, I do have a beginner section. Okay. Where I talk about great. a lot of things I like to do as a beginner. Um, and so I have a beginner section, but then it's like, and the same thing with end games, like with end games, I break them down into actually different categories. And I talk about how to learn different categories of end games. And again, starting from most basic, what would be an example? 
category. So one category, for example, are end games. Your goal is to know them and be able to play them in your sleep and know precisely what it is right away without thinking. So like technical, yeah. Yeah, but I don't group it technical and practical because those terms get thrown around a lot, in my opinion, incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I-, I call them very creatively type one through four. Okay. But the basic <laughs> idea is type one is like you do it like someone wakes you up at 3 a.m., wakes you up at 3 a.m., puts a position in front of you. You can play it perfectly every time against the computer, basically. That's the goal. It doesn't mean you're there right away. But like, for example, you know, things from King and Pawn Endgames to Philidor and, you know, that's the first type. And my main thing that I'm trying to get across is that a big goal of learning endgames is to expand to that as much as possible. So your type one endgames become bigger, like the more endgames you can play. Because at first, it takes a while to be able to defend a Philidor without thinking. Eventually, you can kind of do it. Like without thinking almost at all, you can just defend a Philidor. But that's your goal to know them that well. Uh, then there are end games like you calculate to get to that position, right? So you calculate a force line to get there. Then mm-hmm. there are ones which are, you know, I would call them like simple end games is what I call them, but you could call them technical end games where it's basically like a rook upon a, like end games where there are not a lot of threats, like there's not a lot going on. And then it's about the importance of planning. But the eventual goal is usually all end games end up in type one eventually. <laughs> so the idea is you expand type one. I I kind of tell you how to do that and how to figure them out, and then you know, talk about how to approach different types of end games and, and learn them. Uh, and I'll do the same again. I'm trying to do the same with openings, different middle game stuff. It, it turned out from a, a book where I was originally going to do kind of tips for players to this outrageous thing, however that happened. But <laughs> I'm hoping, though, it's like going to be fairly comprehensive. Sounds great. Uh, I yeah. just hope I don't bore people to tears. That's my main, my main <laughs> it's goal. It's always a good goal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm trying to make it more like the, the language a bit casual. Just yeah. so it's like, it doesn't seem like you're reading a technical, you know, <laughs> notebook, but, uh, but it will have a lot more technical things in it that, you know, a lo- kind of the stuff that you should do at first and, but that a lot of people probably don't. Have, so. Okay. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we can discuss it when it, uh, sees the light of day, which, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm really hoping it gets to the point where I have more free time and like it can, you know, see the light of day, but, uh, yeah. but I'm getting there. Like it's, it's a work in progress for sure. Excellent. All right. Well, Josh, it was good to catch up uh, yeah. for listeners. The course is called Beginner Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm excited to hear that you'll be posting more on YouTube and stuff, because as I've told you many times, I always enjoy your instructional content. So um, so congrats on the course and uh, yeah, appreciate good luck it. with Thank the you. book. Thanks and the cooking and the tennis and the guitar <laughs> and everything like else. You can see why I didn't become stronger at chess, right? <laughs> like I have way too much else going on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rule number one is don't don't have any other interests. <laughs> yeah. Alright, All right, Josh. Thanks a lot. See you. Podcast Network.